Peace and love. Peace and love. Welcome to this neighborhood, neighbor. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You know what I am? I'm a housewife that figured it out. Wow, 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 And now, here's the host of Good Things Radio, Brooke Taylor. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Good Things Radio. My name is Brooke Taylor, a housewife who has not figured it out. And if that's you too, you're in the right place. This is episode number 139. And boy, are we blessed with a good teacher today, though. This is the second in a two-part series with Dr. Aaron Cariotti, a UC Irvine health psychiatrist who specializes in adult psychiatry services, but also has powerful insight on all demographics. In our last episode, we talked a lot about adolescents, young adults. We'll pick up on that again today. And his clinical interest interests include general adult psychiatry, medical ethics. Also, he's the author of the book, Catholic Guide to Depression, How the Saints, the Sacraments, and Psychiatry Can Help You Break Its Grip and find happiness again. Now, on the last show, we did cover everything from the most basic question of what is depression exactly, the current climate of mental health in adolescence, and how we parents can better help our kids. And that really sets the table, I think, for what we're about to discuss today. Why are women diagnosed with depression so much more than men? What are some unique challenges that moms face, and really all women for that matter, and what is sometimes known as chronic sorrow, a condition stemming from an ongoing grief, but it's not depression, and that might be a situation that caregivers would face or special needs parents like myself, and I have to say candidly, maybe not surprisingly, that particular portion that we're going to hear today is probably my favorite part of our entire discussion because it, it, I think, is something I really needed to hear, and I hope it blesses you as well. And so let's jump back in. As we discussed in part one with Dr. Aaron, we ended talking about young adults, how we as parents can help foster a healthy foundation. And part of the challenge I have found, I'm just being honest, is when there is a challenge, okay, so say like ADD, and you want to walk that line between encouraging them, supporting them when they fall, but also not allowing that to be used as an excuse for everything. As we re-enter the conversation, I was referencing thinking about Viktor Frankl. He's the renowned Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, as well as a Holocaust survivor. And that was really the basis of his study in large part. He studied the human condition and what is it about people that when they are faced with losing everything, where everything can be taken away from a person and yet they survive and they go on to thrive where others cannot. And so he named this theory logotherapy, meaning the pursuit of meaning for one's life. And that in the end, we always have a choice to choose our own way. And so as we re-enter the conversation, I want to start there and have Dr. Aaron speak to that. Take a listen. Thank you for mentioning Frankel. Uh, That book had a profound impact on me. I read it in high school, read it again later in life. And I think Frankel's Man's Search for a Meaning is one of the reasons that I ended up being a psychiatrist. It's it's a tremendous uh, and and today somewhat forgotten uh, great, great work of of the 20th century deserves to be read by, by everyone. But he's absolutely right that even, and he was talking about the conditions in the Nazi concentration camp, which he himself was a personal survivor of. 
And, and what he noticed was people, if they were going to make it through a horrifying ordeal like that, had to maintain some personal sense of meaning and purpose. There had to be something that they were living for. For him, it was the completion of a work, a book that he needed to write. For others, it was, I need to get out so that I can see my wife and children again. And the prisoners in the death camp would notice when a person had finally abandoned those last vestiges of hope. They had a name for it in German, which literally translated the walking dead, that you could see the light go out in the person's eyes. And before long, they would fall back in formation and be shot. They would come down with, with an illness that they would not survive, uh, or they would they would not show up in the morning for roll call and be sent to the, the crematorium. So it's not to say that the people who died in death camps died because they were weak of character or you know because of some personal defect. No, but if they were to survive, they had to maintain a sense of hope and a sense that even in those conditions, as as beleaguered, as oppressed as they, as they were, they still maintained something deep within the soul, a zone of freedom that their oppressors could not touch. And I would say there, there are rare cases of severe and persistent mental illness, schizophrenia with an, an acute psychotic episode or an acute manic episode in the context of bipolar disorder. There are some usually time-limited uh, episodic things that occur with mental illness where a person becomes mentally incapacitated, where they're, they're not responsible. And even the law recognizes that they wouldn't be responsible for behaviors uh, that they engage in under those very severe uh, conditions of, of illness. But those are the exception rather than, than the rule, that even with, even with depression, even with anxiety that can be overwhelming, while our, our freedom and our capacity may be undermined and impaired, we still maintain the ability to make choices. And we can begin to take small steps in the direction of healing and recovery. And in fact, healing and recovery can't and won't occur if the person is just a passive recipient of what other people are doing. So one way to think about medications for depression is not that they're happy pills or that they're a, a quick fix for a complicated illness, but that they, they help sort of set a floor beneath which you know, I'm not going to descend precisely so that I'm a little stronger, a little more well-constituted and can then engage in the work of building my relationships, engage in the work of healing unresolved uh, grief or trauma in the context of psychotherapy. So uh, there's no quick fix for any of these things, but in almost all cases, we have to uh, uh, Initially, and I would say in all cases, we have to eventually be able to engage the person's free will. And the person has to be invested in the process of recovery if it's going to happen. And so we need to take, we need to take young people seriously. I think this is one of the reasons that young people were so very attracted to John Paul II, right? In his World Youth Days, he began that tradition. And people thought it would fail, you know. So who's going to come out and see this this old man? Why are teenagers, you know, going to show up to this thing? Well, of course, they showed up in droves, literally in millions. And they hung on every word that he said. And I think one of the reasons for that is that he took them very seriously. He held up very high and demanding moral and spiritual ideals for them. He didn't water things down to try to accommodate, you know, what he thought they were capable, capable of. He... He, he believed in his heart that young people are capable of great sanctity and great holiness. 
And young people responded to that. They wanted to be taken very seriously. Uh, when I've been talking about the pressures that schools and, and sometimes even families place on young people and how that may contribute to their stress of illness, uh, people often ask me the, the, the question that you posed. Well, we want our young people to flourish and to live up to their expectations and not to squander their gifts and talents. We want them to succeed academically. We want them to succeed athletically or in debate or the chess club or whatever you know, interest, drama, theater that they happen to be engaged in. We want to push them, but we don't want to go overboard. And again, I would go back to this, this criteria of uh, it's not how, uh, what demands are made on them, but how the demands are made on them that I think is really important. There's a genre of films uh, depicting uh, sports teams or sometimes inspiring teachers that, you know, we keep seeing the same movie over and over and over again. It's a great, mm -hmm. inspiring story, right? The underdog team or the underdog class in the impoverished area that goes to the championship and, you know, takes home the trophy. And they're led by an inspiring adult that the kids respond to. Well, if you look at these films, many of them based on actually on true stories, you see that the teacher or the coach in these cases is extremely demanding on the kids. Um, That's true. But what's the difference between that coach and another coach who's extremely demanding and doesn't get those kinds of results or responses from young people. Well, in all of these cases, you also see that this is a man or woman that the kids know deeply cares about me. They care not only if I get a five on the AP exam or if we, you know, if we win the championship game, but they're going to love me just as much if I go out there and give it my all and we don't take home the trophy, right? Or I don't pass the exam. If I'm struggling with something at home, I know this is a person that I can go and talk to, and they're going to listen to me, and they're going to care about what it is that I'm contending with outside of practice or the games or the competition or what have you. And so again, I think if young people feel confident that there are adults, parents, grandparents, extended family members, mentors at school, teachers, coaches, that really care about them in that way, they will want to respond. They will, they will invest all of their energies to try to please that, that older person, to try to convince that older person that, that they're capable of living up to those high expectations. And, and so I think if we, if we shift and reframe our priorities to have a long-term vision for kids, to treat them always as an end in themselves and never as a means to another end, then we can expect great things from them. We can take the approach that we saw with John Paul II of being very demanding. And at the same time, these young people knew this is a man who has so many important things to do, right? And he's trying to shepherd the universal church and he's taking his time to spend it with me, right? He, this is a man who loves me. This is a man who would give his left arm for me. This is a man who would sacrifice uh, for my good. Um, how can people fail to respond uh, to others in their lives that give them a gift like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's tremendous. And so I think we can, we can take young people very seriously. We can make high demands on them um, if we do it in that kind of nurturing context. I know we're almost out of time and I'm panicking because I'm trying to distill down the long list of questions I have. So I want to touch we'll on come quickly. We'll back and do another show if For you like. sure. How about Please, that? yes. I will send treats and prayers and all sorts of goodies to, to get you back. But I wanted to ask, because this audience is so primarily made up of women, the demographic of the female, you shared a story. I think it was on YouTube or one appearance you were on where there was a woman who had endured a lot. She had been through cancer 
beat the diagnosis and was healthy, also depression. And you shared, she said, if I had a choice, I would take the cancer. And that is a profound statement that would shock some. And so, as you mentioned in the top of the show, that misunderstanding that is so often the case with depression, especially for someone that might not suffer with that cross. There are so many women, and in my age of raising children, childbirth on through, do you have, is it hormones? Is it chemical? Is it isolation? Any sort of idea, and I know it's difficult to just paint with a broad brush stroke, but where that could be coming from in faithful women, and I think you also mentioned in the beginning, it's not a spiritual deficiency. There's something more going on, and how we as the body of Christ can help come alongside one another and walk with each other. Is it social media? Is it all of that? Yeah, so thank you for that. And um, I, I'm thinking about how not to give a very long-winded answer to that question because it's a complicated question. We can certainly we can circle back on that later and continue the conversation if you would like because it's an important question. So first of all, we know that women are at higher risk than men for depression. And that is probably hormonally mediated in some way. So we know, for example, that the postpartum period in which there are rapid shifts of uh, progesterone and estrogen in women's body is a period in which women are very vulnerable to depression. I think most of us, uh, thank goodness, are aware today of the problem of postpartum depression and uh, trying to do more to reach out to women, to help women uh, who are struggling with with that profound cross uh, after having a baby and, and all the demands that caring for an infant require, trying to contend with depression at the same time is an enormous burden for women. Uh, we know that uh, women can be more susceptible to depression uh, around the time of menopause and immediately after the period of menopause. And so hormones probably play a role. The effects of hormones uh, estrogen, especially on the developing female brain, probably make it such that women are more vulnerable under stress to develop depression than men. So depression is a, is a problem that's quite common and can affect both men and women, but we know that it affects women more frequently than men, and there's probably very fundamental biological reasons for that. Men and women's brains are different in important ways, and that's important for us to, to understand, especially in a society and culture in which there's a lot of confusion about uh, what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. <laughs> so, in, so in addition to that, though, I, I think that in our current social and cultural climate and context, life is enormously difficult for women. Women are told and very often expected that they can have it all, that they can do it all. I encounter so many women in my clinical practice and in my other work that feel that they are less than or somehow uh, failing or falling short because of their challenges trying to balance the demands of family life and professional work. And I include domestic work. When I say professional work, the work of caring for a home the work of raising children is more demanding than any other profession that I can think of, including certainly my own. Um, but whether it's professional work in the home as, as a homemaker or as a mother of, of children who are still under your roof, 
or a mother who's trying to balance the demands of home life with professional work outside of the home. I think society puts unrealistic expectations on women, gives them too little support, um, and then women uh, very often secretly feel that I should be able to juggle all these balls and keep them all in the air and never drop a single one um, because I look around and see that it appears that other women are managing this. Little do they know that the other women that they're, that they're looking to as the exemplars are probably struggling with the very same, same things, but um, you know, perhaps are, uh, are too, too afraid to admit it openly. So you have these women, I think, struggling uh, in ways that, that make them feel very alone. Uh, they're not receiving the support that they need from our society, which devalues today, I think, the work of the home. Uh, I know many women who, who work at home, my own wife, raising, raising five boys. I mean, can you imagine? I think you, I think you can imagine. If I'm <laughs> not mistaken, you have you know, a large family Four boys, well. yes. Um, one girl, can yep. you imagine the demands of, of trying to do that and then encountering people at the grocery store who, uh, who look down on you because you, you've got a bunch of kids in tow or who literally ask you uh, insane and offensive questions uh, like, don't you want to do some work that is fulfilling? I mean, what could be more important uh, and what could, be, uh, what, what could be more central to the health and flourishing of society than raising the next generation of, of citizens? Uh, but somehow we've gotten into this sort of crazy notion that um, the only important work, the only meaningful work is work uh, that is paid, work that makes money, work that is done outside of the home. And so I think women are very often in a can't win situation today, right? If I work outside the home, then I sort of feel I'm not giving up enough to the family or I feel less than vis-a-vis -vis the stay-at-home mom. If I'm a stay-at-home mom, um, I feel that I'm being unfairly compared to women who are working outside of the home. And it's like, whatever I choose, I. I I, I feel like people are looking askance at that. Uh, people are not understanding what it is that I'm struggling with or contending with. And so uh, I, I don't have a quick and simple answer to this, uh, except to say I think we need to start having realistic conversations about um, how we as a society can be more caring of women who make the decision to work in the home and women who make the decision to work out of the home, um, help them to, I don't even like the word balance, help them to, to invest themselves in, in the family uh, and not feel that they are compromising their other professional work. And I think you know, opening up more daycare centers at work is fine, but that's, that's a pretty superficial uh, solution to, I think, a very complex social problem. Um, so I, I think having more and more women in the workforce has been a, a, a tremendous thing for our society. It's been wonderful. It's in my own profession of medicine. We have more women and men now than uh, in, in medical school. And it's, it's humanized medicine. Uh, the contributions of women to medicine have been tremendous. Um, but I also know as someone who uh, was a director of residency training and having to help uh, young men and women make it through their period of medical school and psychiatric training, uh, just the challenges that I think women especially have to contend with in professional life and personal life um, and, and feeling uh, like they don't have adequate support for that um, is something that our society needs to start paying more attention to. Um, and women, quite frankly, um, need to feel encouraged to start talking openly about this and admitting 
admitting their struggles, admitting their, their vulnerabilities. And I think if, if women sort of come out and begin to do that, um, you know, fly up the flag and, and take the risk of, of admitting uh, that, that I'm having trouble or I need, I need some help, I need more support, uh, she's going to find that other women are flocking to her saying, you know, I'm, I'm contending with the same thing. And uh, rather than looking uh, to my left and my right at the women around me as some sort of competition or some sort of benchmark uh, that I need to meet, uh, I should instead uh, be looking uh, to these women for sources of friendship and support. Well, I want to thank you. That's beautiful because not only do you understand the interior of a woman, but obviously the exterior as well, and just the many things that we carry, the challenges. And I thank you for studying that and so beautifully articulating that. As we close, conclude, because I heard the cue, (laughs) your phone was ringing. Um, The one thing I wanted to end with, well, two things. I want to end on a positive redemptive note, but a, a personal note that as you encapsulated the story of a woman, especially a woman of child raising years and things like that, when there's a curveball thrown in, like a disability yeah. or your yeah. caregiving, you've got a, a mother or a father that has Alzheimer's or yeah. uh, something that isn't going to just go away. That ha- that was my experience of having a very successful career, feeling called to my radio job in communication, and then also called to adoption and a diagnosis that would be pervasive and lifelong and understanding chronic sorrow, not depression, it's different, and trying to unwrap that theory, but feeling for the first time, it was years into this diagnosis that I felt like that's it. Because I don't on a daily basis feel depressed, but there are times where I continue to grieve. And for anyone in a situation where it is going to be lifelong. Can you offer some words? What is chronic sorrow? Is that a true diagnosable thing? And, and any words of hope you can offer with that? Sure. No, thank you for that. I, I think if we were to put this in mental health terms, there's there's a term called dysthymia, which is a, it could be characterized as a chronic, maybe low-level depression that doesn't have all the symptoms of a full-blown depression, but that tends to be Uh, tends to last longer. I think some of what you're describing might fall into that category, but I think there's also a a form of uh, sadness, of perhaps a spiritual sadness, and a, a grief that you might characterize as the sorrow of love. And the sorrow of love is not necessarily a bad thing, although it is, it is a painful thing. If you have a loved one, let's say an adopted child, uh, coming to terms with the fact that that child may have wounds, perhaps from very early in life, even if you adopted them at birth, uh, there's a lot that happened prenatally. There's a lot that may have happened in the first few weeks of life while the adoption was being finalized that had an impact on the child. Many children that are adopted out are adopted away because their their mothers are very unhealthy. Uh, so the child may have been exposed to drugs in utero. The child may have been exposed to, um, by way of the mother's trauma, to suboptimal early life mm-hmm. conditions, let's say. And so it's a, it's a sad fact of our fallen world that some people come into the world bearing the burden of wounds that other people are not saddled with. 
a parent obviously wants the best for their children, and we would love to be able to nurture that child in such a way that, you know, my love can overcome all of that. My, if only I shower them with more affection, um, give myself more, then those wounds can be healed. And coming to the realization that for some people, hope needs to be, I'm going to use a theological term here, very eschatological. What I mean by that is uh, there are many things that we can hope for in this life, but some things we can only hope for in the next life. We do what we can to mitigate the suffering, to heal the wounds of, of people that are struggling, that are suffering, that are impaired in some way. But some of those things will only fully and finally be healed by the love of Christ and by union with God in heaven. And so coming to accept that for a parent can be a difficult struggle because if there are things that I can do to help the child, I want to do them. I want to do, and so we get, in, we get into this business of searching for the answer, uh, searching for the right professional help, searching for the right school, searching for the right parenting approach that can sort this out or fix this or make up for the deficits. Um, and we do that out of love, but at the same time, coming to the realization that I've done what I can, I've done what I know how to do, the child is still struggling and suffering in some way, perhaps not all of this can be fixed by the love of a mother, by the love of a good family. That's going to be a process of grieving, that's going to involve carrying our own cross, of accepting our own limitations, accepting that I am not Jesus. Uh, I want to be his instrument in the world, and I want to be a means of grace for other people. But at the end of the day, uh, God may, for reasons that are beyond our comprehension, allow this person that I love to continue to struggle with this or that for the rest of their life. Um, I think coming to terms with that involves a kind of sorrow that you may always carry with you. Uh, at times it's going to be painful, but if we understand that not all tears are evil, that our Lord shed tears for his friend Lazarus, that in his agony and on the cross, our Lord suffered not just our physical afflictions, but our emotional pain as well. Everything that we experience, save for sin, Christ himself experienced, including our sorrow, including our, you could say, our mental anguish, including being heartbroken for people that he loved, that perhaps did not respond to his love, that perhaps were, were, were broken and wounded um, in, in ways that were, that were heartbreaking. I think uh, it's important for any of us that are contending with that to recognize that when we're carrying that cross, we are not far from our Lord. Um, to meditate frequently on his passion, to meditate frequently on his tears that he shed uh, for his friend who had died. Um, and to remember that, uh, that Christ always loved with a human heart, that the second person of the Blessed Trinity made his dwelling place among us, not just appearing to be a man, not just taking on a human body as a sort of uh, a shell that he walked around in, 
but he assumed our humanity entirely and that he loved not only with his divine love that was present from all eternity, but that he loved and he still loves with a human heart, with a heart that was wounded and broken, not only on the cross, but in, in other periods of his life as well. You can think of, of his sadness when Joseph died, which is not recounted for us in the sacred scriptures, um, but it seems uh, that, uh, that Joseph must have passed away prior to our Lord's public ministry. Uh, what must that have been like for our Lord uh, to accompany Joseph in his last moments and to see this man that he loved, who had cared for him uh, as, as the best of fathers could have cared for their child, uh, to let him go, uh, to let him go before uh, our Lord began his public ministry, before this period of, of life that um, would, would obviously involve being driven into the wilderness and tempted and being rejected and being betrayed by one of his best friends and, and finally uh, suffering a, a horrendous death. So I think with something like this, a chronic sorrow could shade into a clinical syndrome of depression that, that may require clinical attention. Um, there, there can be a danger, though, of over-medicalizing these things and of uh, just like we can sort of pre prematurely spiritualize any and all depression and just say it's, it's sort of a... Uh, it's, it's a dark night of the soul or it's a problem of faith. Uh, that, that's one danger. But there's, there's another danger of maybe over-medicalizing things that are a part of the human experience and a part of the life of any, any follower of Christ. Um, and so I think among the remedies for this is frequent meditation on our Lord's humanity and connecting with him in our prayer um, in a very human way and recognizing that uh, that our God is not far from us. He came He came so unbelievably close to us that He made these experiences His own. And in that, I think there's great um, great psychological and spiritual consolation. Well, I just so profoundly hear knit in your voice the spirit of John Paul II. You know, I I hear him echoing through your words and the the profound understanding of the spiritual person, the redemptive journey, the virtue of hope. And that's where I really want to end today is positive takeaways, redemptive suffering as it relates to all that we've discussed. How can we cultivate that in ourselves? For those we love who are battling any sort of cross that deals with mental illness, depression, sorrow. Yeah, so that virtue of hope is so central to the Christian life, and it's very often forgotten, right? We hear a lot talked or preached about faith. We hear a lot about love. But that middle of the three theological virtues, I think, gets too little attention these days. And ours is a world that is crying out for, that is desperate for real, tangible hope. Um, hope can mean many things. For us, ultimately, hope has a, a horizon that goes beyond uh, the trials and tribulations of this life, and, and we look to a hope that ultimately only God can give. Hope is, by, by saying that it's a theological virtue, what we're saying is it's a gift of grace. It's not something that we can conjure up by our own power. So the first thing that I would say is that we need to pray frequently for the virtue of hope because it is a gift, because it is a work of grace, because it is given to us by the Holy Spirit, when we are in a situation in which we use all the powers of our intellect, our reasoning to try to figure out what's going on, to try to study, to try to talk to people, get advice, 
um, professional advice, advice from friends, and we still can't see any way forward. We still can't see any hope to ask for it from God, um, to ask God for a hope that goes beyond just our human vision and um, our immediate horizon. The other thing that we need to do is to try to convey that hope to other people. So if someone is in the midst of a profound depression, there's probably nothing that I can say to them that's going to make them feel better today, that's going to lift that um, oppressive cloud that they're laboring under. Even giving them a, a medication, the medications don't work for depression until about three or four weeks out. Um, there's almost nothing that we can do that's going to fix it in the moment. But what we can do is to tell the person uh, and to try to convey to the person that while there's nothing that I can do to fix this today, or to sort out all the difficulties and problems in your life today, what I can tell you is that I'm gonna walk with you. I'm going to accompany you through this process, that this can get better, that there is hope for you, um, that there is a reason that you're here, and it may be hard to see it right now, um, but if you are having trouble hoping, then let me hope for you. Let me pray for you on your behalf. Um, to let people know that we are willing and able to sit with them and to be with them in their pain. That's what compassion means. Compassion doesn't mean sort of warm feelings of pity for someone who's suffering. The, the word literally, compassio, means to suffer with. Um, I think oftentimes we avoid people that are struggling with something like this because we don't want to take it on. We don't want to be burdened with it. Uh, we don't want to walk the difficult or arduous road that a friendship with this person may require, where the person maybe for the next six months is not going to be able to reciprocate and give back and sort of nurture me in the way that I would like to be nurtured in the friendship. But uh, nevertheless, I'm going to be loyal. I'm going to be there for them, even when it, it seems like my, maybe my efforts aren't helping, trusting uh, in faith and having the hope that nothing is lost, that, that my smallest acts of kindness um, in, the, in the great economy of salvation are meaningful. And maybe I can end with just a little anecdote to try to illustrate this point. Um, the number one suicide spot in the world is the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. There have been about 1,500 people that have died that we know of, probably more that we don't know of, but at least 1,500 people have died jumping from the bridge since it was built, which is approximately one every two weeks, which is is heartbreaking and astounding uh, if you stop and think about that for a few moments. There was a man in his 30s who ended up dying uh, by jumping off the bridge. And the psychiatrist and the medical examiner went to his apartment after his death and they found his diary. And his, the last entry in the diary was written just a couple of hours before he died. And it said, I'm going to walk to the bridge. And if one person smiles at me along the way, I will not jump. The verse from the sacred scriptures that comes to mind when I think about this, this story is from St. Paul, where he says that you have died in baptism with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And among the many things that I think that means is that our life, our efforts, our small acts of kindness, our attempt to smile at the person who looks like they're having a bad day as we pass them by on the street or as we encounter them in the grocery store, we may not see the full effects of these things on other people. 
We may not see the flowers that bloom as the, as the result of our efforts, but as people of faith and hope, um, we have to trust that, that those small acts of kindness are hidden with Christ and God, that everything that we do to try to heal the wounds in a broken world, to try to reach out to people that are suffering or struggling, even if the immediate tangible results are not apparent to us, we may be planting seeds that only germinate later. Uh, we may be one link in a long chain, a long process of recovery, but an important link without which perhaps the person wouldn't have continued on that road to recovery. Uh, so for us to, to maintain that faith, which at the end of the day is supernatural, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's not something that we can sort of wrap our, our human, human mind around and, and figure it out, uh, but to trust that um, in the economy of, of salvation, because our life is hidden with Christ and God, even these small acts of kindness can have an impact on people. And in some cases, they literally may even be life-saving. Wow. Just brilliant, beautiful, and um, so grateful for your words of wisdom. I feel like I need to just go in the woods and sit after that. It's a lot to absorb, but we need it. And Pope Francis talks about the therapy of a smile. And yeah, what a beautiful illustration to uh, – I mean, it's a tragic illustration, but the importance to – Praying, we know, is not just vertical, but we can pray with our eyes, look at people, listen to their words, smile, and the gift of ourselves. And like you said, that fruit is beyond anything that we can imagine when the Lord magnifies it with his graces. Thank you so much for your time, for your heart, your mind, all that you contribute in not only the new evangelization, but in the medical field, in all the souls that you touch. And for those that, well, I'm sure everyone that wants to get more information, how can we find you? Sure. So my book, The Catholic Guide to Depression, is available online. You can buy it from Sophia Institute Press. You can buy it on Amazon, uh, Catholic bookstores. Uh, I have several online articles, so if you just Google my name, Aaron Cariotti, you'll run across them. The articles that we referenced in the show are found on firstthings.com, First Things Magazine, published Dying of Despair, published my article called Killer Show on the 13 Reasons Why Phenomenon. And there's a few other articles there that I've written on uh, mental health issues and mental health in relation to society and in relation to uh, religion and spirituality. So those are a couple of places that people can look if they're interested in, in more reading on the subject. Wonderful. And hopefully we'll revisit this discussion again. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. I look forward to our next, next time we can connect, Brooke. Thanks. Thank you again, Dr. Aaron Cariotti. What a fantastic, in-depth, insightful, inspirational interview. And I do hope that he returns again and again to the program. Just very, very thankful for his time and wisdom. If you are blessed by today's program, I would just urge you, invite you to share it with someone who you think may benefit as well. If you haven't subscribed to Good Things Radio yet, it's easy to do. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe on iTunes. I downloaded the Podbean app. And you can do that easily. And that's one way as well. And we'd love to know your thoughts. This has been a big series for us here. Your feedback is valued greatly. Was there one thing or everything that he said that resonated with you? Did it cause a paradigm shift or an epiphany in some way? Let us know. You can reach out via email at feedback at goodthingsradio.com. Also, Voxer. 
and that's Brooke Taylor and the number one. And in our next episode, it is back from pilgrimage. I can't wait to tell you all about the journey to Italy, 10 days with the most amazing family of believers, going to different places, praying our way through each step, encountering the saints, having lots of pasta, and really bringing you into that experience as well. So that's coming up on episode number 140. And in my stead, a big thank you to my producer, Mark Cumming from Coming Home Studios for getting these programs out while we've been about and adventuring in Europe. You can find out more about Mark by visiting his website, cominghomestudios.com. He is a producer extraordinaire and wears many hats. Thank you for his dynamic skills and quick work. And if you have any production needs, you can connect with him again, Coming Home Studios. Thank you to all of our Podbean patrons. If you want to be a good friend of the show, you can find out more in the show notes. There's lots of goodies in there, including our Choose Joy devotional, our 52-week journey through the liturgical year, and we'll also have links to Dr. Aaron's book and articles as well that you can find on our show notes. Until next time, friends, God bless you and keep you.